Welcome to Life on the Land, a Grazy Herb podcast telling the stories of women living across regional, rural and remote Australia. I'm Sammy O'Brien and this is my first time hosting an episode of Life on the Land, which I'm super excited about and of course I'm very grateful to be part of the incredible Grazy Herb team, working alongside these wonderful and very impressive women. So hello everyone and thank you for having me. Our guest today is Melinda O'Donoghue. Melinda is often compared to Cinderella's fairy godmother. Known as the Outback Wedding Dressmaker, she's made close to 300 wedding dresses for country and city brides around the nation. A classically trained seamstress, working alongside the likes of well-known designer Alex Perry in Sydney, Melinda and her husband now live on a property in Gurley, just over 30 kilometres south of Moree in New South Wales. Her sewing room is somewhat of a wonderland, an escape from the harsh landscape beyond its four walls. Shelves upon shelves are stacked with colourful, textured fabrics, threads and ribbons. It's an absolute feast for the eyes. Melinda's tale appears to be the stuff of fairy tales, yet as is common in narratives from the bush, it's also laced with a significant amount of adversity and heartbreak. Enduring harsh droughts, devastating floods and ravaging fires have been part of her reality. I spoke to Melinda a few weeks after a monstrous fire tore through their property, coming alarmingly close to their beloved 163-year-old original timber family home. Uh, Melinda, you've just been through a really, really terrifying experience. Tell me about the fire. It's not an afternoon I'd like to do again. It was Good Friday and our children, William and Kate, and William's girlfriend, Maddie and Alex, Alex, Kate's boyfriend, were home. And we were just having a lovely afternoon, pottering about. William was making bread. I was, I don't know what I was doing, just, you know, around the house. And, and Des, I think, was watching television. And William sat on a chair in the front of our sitting room and looked out the window and just said, oh, my God, there's smoke and there's fire out there. And... We all action stations all roared outside and could see that it was burning a lot over sort of behind our sheds and over towards Des's brother lives in a cottage on our place. And it was pretty big by this point. There were large yellow flames and lots of black smoke. And Des headed off to go and he has a truck um, to go and get his truck and trailers out. And we sort of headed back into the house and the kids were sort of like, mum, you've got to get things. And all I could think about was wedding dresses. And, you know, I've always said to my children over the years, if there's a fire, grab the dresses. I take pretty seriously that I've got people's most important dress that they'll ever wear in my care. So we bundled dresses. I got some patterns and some fabric of things, dresses that were coming up. I sort of ran into our bedroom and thought, Oh, I'll get some underwear and, and, you know, decided that I needed to go to the toilet. My husband's always saying the ship will go down and I'll say, I'll be saying I need to go to the toilet. And the kids were screaming at me because by that point there was just black smoke and because it had been going for two hours, which we found out afterwards, but couldn't really see because of trees and sheds and things, it was at a point where we had to leave the house. I have to say, if the kids weren't here, I probably wouldn't have left the house, which would have been wrong. Um, and William and Alex are both medical students, so they were very concerned about smoke inhalation. The worst thing was that Des sailed out the door without his phone. So at this point, 
we just had to leave and I kept on thinking Des will be sensible, he'll do the right thing. Um, so as I was heading over the ramp, there was flames and smoke and we stopped outside. Um, our house is quite close to the road. We stopped on at the road and I said to Kate, you better take a photo of Kira Mingley. I think this will be the last time that we see her. And we just sort of sat down the road and had to keep getting further and further away from the house because there was so much smoke. Um Lots of crazy phones, calls to triple zero, who eventually, after about 45 minutes, the lovely local fire brigade came and the head of the fire brigade um, at Gurley was actually in Sydney at the Sydney show and he was amazing. He kept on ringing me saying, there's fire trucks from Narrabri, there's fire trucks from Moray. I think in the end we ended up with six fire trucks and two planes um, and a police car. So it was all, you know, action stations. Um, probably about 45 minutes in of waiting and I just kept on thinking, there's the house. And I, I kept on looking back at the smoke. I know when a house goes, it's very black and it goes straight up. And it was not black and not straight up. It was just brown and red and yellow. And about 45 minutes in, I think that one of the women that was with the girly fire brigade rang my phone or Kate's phone and said, Des is fine, the house is fine. Um, so we knew that everything was all right by that point, but it was that terrifying 45 minutes waiting for the fire brigade to come. And it was very blustery and windy and there were a few Hail Mary said and, and lots of, uh, it, was, it was a strange, surreal thing. I just kept on thinking, he'll be fine, the house will be fine. But deep down, I was thinking, oh, I don't know how this is going to end. But we were very, very, very lucky. It really has burnt about 300 acres. And Des, because the children were coming home, decided that week to very diligently mow all out the front of our house, outside the garden yard. And the fireman said to me, if he didn't do that, you would have lost the house, absolutely. Mm. Um, so that was pretty amazing. And Kate's boyfriend, Alex, beautiful, gorgeous fellow, he turned all the garden hoses on as everyone was, you know, getting in cars and trying to get dresses and things in the car. I, I did grab an envelope that had birth certificates and baptism and marriage certificates in it, but that was about it. And I remember Kate saying to me, what do you want? And I said, there's, I can't, there's no, I can't choose between anything. And I just need to get these dresses and we all need to get in the car and go. And that's that. And we didn't, I didn't think at the time there was a, a lot of truck tires over behind Des's shed and they caught on fire. And that was what a lot of the black smoke was, which in a normal world, I suppose, when you're not having a panic thinking that you're going to burn or the house is going to burn, you, I would have realised that. But yeah, but anyway, we're, we're all safe and, and our beautiful old house which is 1860s and 1900, and they say within 10 minutes she would have been gone completely, you know, lovely old cypress pine. So we are very, very, very blessed. Oh, Melinda, that just sounds absolutely horrifying. What were you thinking in that moment when you said to the kids, take a photo of the house because it might be the last Oh, I mean, yeah, I, I just, it was, it was quite, it was very, I was, it was a, yeah, I, I just can't explain it, um, disbelief, I think. And I just, in the back of my mind, kept on thinking, no, we can't lose the house. But plenty of people, and, you know, do lose their houses. And I actually, a couple of days later, got a beautiful message from a lovely Moree girl who had lost her house probably about two years ago. And she had four children and a week old baby and their house went and they lost absolutely everything. And I kept on thinking, well, if Megan can survive this and, and lose everything with four small children, I'm sure we'll be fine. But you do just think, I can't believe that we'll be losing everything that we own, but we didn't. So by the time that we were allowed back to the house, which was about 6.30, and we were sort of around the corner 
And by the time we drove back, it was dark and everything was on fire. All the paddocks were on fire and there were, you know, cars and sirens and everything, every, not sirens, lights flashing. And But the house, the lights were on and everything was, I think one of the air conditioners was still on because we didn't turn that off as we ran out the door. So the house just sat in the middle of the chaos, quite happily doing what it does. So it was quite amazing. Wow. And then what was the feeling like when you drove back to see that and you saw that your beautiful home had been saved? It was just the most extraordinary thing. It really, because the lights were on um, and it was dark and, and it was just as though it had always, you know, as it should be. It was it was just very strange, very smoky. And I we went to um, Mass on the, on the Sunday morning and, and somebody said to us, you all smell like smoke. And, and I'm sure I had someone come to the house the other day and they said, oh, you can still smell smoke. Um, but that's that's fine. I can I can deal with a bit of smelling like smoke. And as as time goes on, we're expecting some rain this weekend, and I will start doing a lot more washing. We're a bit low on water, so um, and there was a lot of water used in the in the fire, obviously. So I will start washing slip covers and doing those sorts of things. But really, there was no fire. There's no water that went in the house from fire brigade, you know, from fire trucks. So we're very lucky to smell a little bit like smoke. And there was a there was a black sort on things um, and we certainly had to give the house a good vacuum because I should have in the moment shut all the doors but I just didn't. Oh, uh, you're you not know, thinking at that time though are no, you? No you're not. You were and, thinking of has, the dresses. I was thinking <laughs> of the dresses and I had a beautiful mother and bride about two hours before the fire came um, so their dresses were easy or well, I hadn't started um, Harriet's dress but her, I had her mum's dress that she had bought and I have to alter so it went in the car and and some other dresses that I was working on. A girl that's actually getting married on Saturday, so her dress went in the car and and um, she said, "Oh, I think there'll have to be mention of the dress and the fire in in speeches on Saturday." Um, so and they don't, I don't think they smell like smoke. I did ask them when they tried their dresses on, and, and that, but I can't tell because. Um, I'm living in the house, but when our daughter Kate went back to see, to Brisbane um, and William and Maddie, they said they opened their suitcases and everything smelled like smoke. But when you're living in it, you can't tell, I suppose. Gosh, that is mm. so glad everything's okay. Gosh. Mm. Can you tell me about your house in Gurley and how you came to be there? So I met my husband and we married and... Moved up to Balatta, a little village about half an hour away, and lived there for three years. Um, and I always said to Des, I'll live wherever you want me to live, but I don't want to live in a house in town. I want to be out on the land. So we looked and looked and looked. And then eventually a, a dear friend, Peter Fulton Kennedy, rang us and said, I, I know the house that you need to buy and the National Park's own it. It had been owned by a beautiful family for 50 years and they'd sold their property to the National Parks. And Peter said to me, oh, you'll love it. He knew that I loved old houses. So William was about one, I think. And we drove to Moree and I thought, I'll just take a little detour down to Kiramingli and and as soon as I saw it's a lot it's a quite a pretty house I saw the house and stopped William was asleep in the car and I parked and and ran and just had a look in the house it was full of blowaway grass it had been empty for six years um lovely old chandeliers in the sitting room and beautiful black and white tiles in the front entrance way but it was it, it had obviously been not lived in for six years and so we started the process of a approaching the national parks and we found out that they were going to auction it off and it took about 12 months for it to come up for auction and it was buyer beware there was no electricity 
lots of things had been stolen out of it, in, including shower, all the shower screens and air conditioners and strange things, hot water services. Um, but we were lucky enough to buy it at auction. And I think we had nine, 10 friends come to, to the auction to support us. I think they were more worried about what Des was going to do with me if we didn't get it because I was very, we used to come and visit the house and I had put a picture on the fridge and said, Melinda and Des and William O'Donoghue, Kira Ingley. And, and I was like, you know, we're going to get this house. So that sort of started the love affair with our very old house. And we that, the family that owned it um, cared for it beautifully, but in the time that since they had left and it was empty, had it had become quite run down. Um, yeah, and we've just been slowly over the last 20 years. We bought it on the day of the Sydney Olympics in 2000. So um, it's been a long affair. So, um, and I think that's what a few friends were thinking, oh, my God, that house, they've done so much work to it. For oh, it to, my gosh. To, and it's had go. such a long journey. and oh. It has. It has, definitely. And and Des has, during the drought, things were pretty tough. And Des had bought an old little beekeeper's hut that he spent seven years building and building a deck on it. And we've just got it finished for our daughter's 21st last year. And it, the fire came within about three metres of the bee hut. And one of my friends, Victoria, was driving over just to, you know, be with us. And she kept on thinking, oh, no, the bee hut. But anyway, the bee hut is still living. So we're, we're very lucky, very, very blessed. I love how you described to me on the phone that it was almost like someone had put a little snow globe over they did. That's oh, a, it's the strangest thing because, and every time somebody comes because it's still black everywhere, they just get out of the car and shake their head and say, I just can't believe that. It is exactly like that. There's just a dome put out over the house and Des's brother's house as well. It was, it did, it's the fire just sort of went around them and, it, and it's been a really good lesson and, and Des's brother keeps it all mown, you know, out around his house and it's been a really good lesson and, and so many people have said, oh, we've, you know, got our slashes out since your fire and yeah. made sure we don't have um, so much grass and because it's been a good season the last few seasons, there has been, there's so much grass and that's why the paddocks, like we only have 70 acres but there was about 250 acres of the National Park that, that did burn as well. We had some lovely neighbours in there graders that came and put a huge great big road sort of around the edge of the fire to stop it get it going any further so people were amazing they really were amazing do you know what was the cause of the fire we think it was lightning strike it was a it was a really uh blustery afternoon and there were big storms in Moree and Kate and Alex came home from Brisbane and and came through a storm not that far from here and we think that's what it was. Des's brother would decided they'd walk outside and have a cup of tea and, and looked and there was the fire. And so he unfortunately spent about two hours trying to put it out without coming and telling us. He kept on thinking, oh, it'll be fine, I'll put it out. But it just got out of control and I think he didn't want to leave it to come and tell us that everything was on fire. Um, just one of those unfortunate things and it just got out of control. He did get a little bit burnt, but he was fine. Um, but he's very lucky as well. Mm. Oh, I'm so glad that it all, you know, somewhat worked out for you. It's incredible. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Wow. And, and the dresses were safe. That's the moment. And the dresses were safe. <laughs> It's funny, isn't it? And I, and I, you know, I suppose it's just one of those things that I, I, I am always, and I, when I'm making a dress, I always think, oh, I hope I don't break my leg. Oh, I hope I don't have a car accident. I've got to get this girl's dress done. So um, hopefully someone is looking after me as well. Oh, they must be. Gosh. 
Now, Melinda, you are from a farming family originally, so it wouldn't have been a huge move for you to come from the Riverina to Moree. No, no, not at all. I grew up on a mixed um, farming property about 30k south of West Wylong. Area Park is a little village that was, you know, our little town that where we went to primary school and did all those sorts of things. So, no, I, lo- I love the land and I and I didn't ever want to live in town. I mean, I did stints in cities and lived in Canberra and lived in Sydney, but I knew that I always wanted to raise my children out on the land if I possibly could. And I absolutely love your love story. Can you tell us about how you <laughs> your husband is? <laughs> so we met through a, a dear mutual friend um, and we all went to, I was, when I finished college, I went home to my parents' property to do some work, just to, they'd supported me when I was studying fashion to do, they had a lovely old peasy house, a mud home. And I went home to do some painting and wallpapering. And sadly, during the process of that, mum and dad's next door neighbour's wife at 34 got cancer. Um, and she had a one-year-old child and Tom, her husband, asked would I stay at home and help him. They had an emu farm as well as a normal farm. So I helped him with Hugh, their son, and not really looking after Robin, but I, you know, just helped him generally. And during the process of that, um, I met Des. Des's family were tree timber loggers from Victoria and they sold their business and, and Des's father um, I think was starting to sit in a chair and not do anything. And Des's mother said, right, get off that chair. We're going to buy a pub. So they bought a hotel at Ardlethan, which is close to where I grew up. And Des went into business with them. And I met him not long after they'd sold that. And he was living actually up here. And he always used to say, if I was lucky enough to get married, I'd move to Balata or, you know, the Moray area. Um, so we met one weekend and, after two days, Des said to me, I think that we might get married. And I said, yeah, I think that we probably will. And that was that. We got officially engaged two and a half months later. Yeah, we just knew. It was just one of those. If that isn't love at first sight, I don't know what it is. It was just easy. And and Des has got a saying, it should be easy. If it's not easy, then it's not right. And we just knew. And we did did have a long engagement. And I had finished college. And I thought, I don't want to get married and move to the country and never work in the fashion industry. And I actually had studied commercial design because I didn't want to become a dressmaker. I'd always made clothes as I was studying fashion. Um, So, and I had done work experience with Alex Perry. And in those days, um, under the Ritz-Carlton in Sydney was a whole big bridal sort of centre. And so I, we moved to Sydney. I, now that I know there's a little bit better, I can't believe that he moved to Sydney. Um, and we lived in Bondo Junction and he went to be a tree locker down in the Sutherland Shire. And I used to walk from Bondi to Double Bay every day. And I went to work for Alex Perry and another lady called Mandy Levos. And, and yeah, I had a, a year of, of that, which was very interesting. Um, amazing, really fascinating year. And then I finished work a month before we got married and I sat in a little um, house in Bondi and made my wedding dress and my sister's, uh, made my bridesmaids' dresses and my mother and my niece's clothes. And then we got married and three days after our wedding, we put everything we owned onto the back of Des's semi-trailer, including his ute with all our wedding presents in it. And we moved to Balata. So it was a, it was a funny, and now I look back, I think, oh, good Lord. And we, you know, had no, no money, no car, no phone, no, 
radio, television, lots of old furniture. And a, one of my friends rang on, well, while we were driving up and said, I think you better have the first night with us. And then we moved into a lovely old house. It, Des had been a bit romantic and had glossed up the state of the house. It was a lovely old house, but it was a bit wild. And so I probably spent the first two weeks thinking, oh, good Lord, what have I done? But anyway, it was lovely. And then three years later, we, we bought Kira Mingley and we'd had William in and we were married for 12 months before we had William. So, um, yeah, part of the adventure. Wow. And at the time, was working for Alex Perry, was that quite a big deal? It was. Well, he's a really lovely fellow. It was just on the cusp of him becoming quite famous. Um, really, really lovely fellow. I learned a lot of and a lot of how I sew I learned from him. Um, yeah, really, really interesting. The other lady that I worked for was very it was very stressful. She was not a, not as organized and <laughs> I could write a book on some of the stories and some of the things that went on there, but um yeah, very, it was a really interesting, probably not with Alex, but with the other lady, I learned a lot of what not to do than more than what to well, do. Well, it was probably her. a good pairing then, I guess. It was, it was. But, yeah, it's been amazing to see that he has gone on to be just phenomenal and, and so successful. And, yeah, he's a lovely fellow, really, really nice fellow. Did you follow in your mum's footsteps with the dressmaking or where did your... Yes, mum sewed always. My childhood is very much all about mum sewing. Um, but in those days, most women did, most country women, they went off to TAFE and they learned to sew and they would have sewn from when they were children. Mum was one of nine. She had, she's one of seven girls. So they all sewed, they all sewed and my grandmother sewed and mum is a beautiful sewer actually. And I remember begging her to teach me to sew absolutely but you know I was the youngest of three children and, and my sister learnt to sew at school and she could sew and it really frustrated me that mum would never teach me to sew so I think in the end I just taught myself uh, and my sister now chuckles and says well well you got the ultimate revenge didn't you look at me I can't sew anything at all now and, and you do it all the time so it's just yes it's such a child such a strong childhood memory for me is learning to sew and and I think um I just wanted different clothes and when I went to boarding school you know it was 1985 and 1983 I think we concocted all these hideous things that um we thought were very fashion and wonderful fashionable and wonderful Wonderful, but yeah, we used to make them all, so it's quite funny. And they're probably all back in fashion now. <laughs> probably, it's, I must admit, it's taken me a long time to get my head around puff sleeves uh, because oh. I lived through the eighties. I'm fifty, about my fifty-four Isn't this year, and we were all about the the puffy sleeves and the sashes. And when they started to become back into fashion, I was like, mm, no, mm, mm, can't I do remember it. But, my mum but... saying the exact same thing. She was like, <laughs> I cannot wear puff sleeves. I wore puff sleeves to my wedding. Oh, definitely. And it's funny, I often say this, like, we all look like sister wives and our mothers dressed the same as we did. Everyone was in the same drop waist, puffy sleeve, sash around the hips. Dreadful, dreadful, dreadful clothes. Oh, and I do love, I, you know, I look at all of our formal dresses. Terrible. And I look at, and I'm, you know, quite often make formal dresses only for really girls that I've watched grow up. But they're all gorgeous, beautiful young girls and they've got beautiful figures and they show them off and it's lovely to see. They're not all looking the same like we look dreadful. But anyway, that's just oh, the I'm evolution sure you're of beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> now, once you'd finished your time in Sydney and you've moved to Gurley, was that 
quite a big transition moving from Bondi back onto a property or did you just love that? It, it was. I remember we, we lived behind the old whale cot, a car wash, which was on the corner of Sid Enfield Drive and Oxford Street. So we were right in the thick of things in Bondi and I walked across the road to Woolworths and I found that really hard to, to not be able to do that. I mean, I'd grown up on a property, so I knew that I couldn't walk across to Woolworths, but um, that was strange and we didn't have a car. I had a car in Sydney and for some reason, I don't know why, I decided to give it to my sister and I think I was delusionally thinking that we were going to get married and all of a sudden have lots of money and, and buy some amazing car, which we didn't. And so I used to have to wait for Des to have a day off work and we'd drive into town and he's used and put all the groceries on the back of the ute and I became friends with a few lovely girls in the area who if they were going to town would take me into town but it was probably I think I was pregnant with William and I said to Des oh, I think we need a car I don't think I could bounce around in your truck, truck any longer so um, that was strange the, probably the strangest thing is that I moved to somewhere where I didn't really know anyone and I'd had, uh, you know, lots of friends and was quite a social person and all the women that I'm now very good friends with were beautiful but it was a bit strange being a newly married person and moving to an area and I had no one other than Des that I knew really well. And, you, you know, those old friends, uh, you can relax and you can and I didn't have that for a couple of years. So that was a strange thing. Um, and then I've, you know, obviously become very good friends with lots of the lovely girls around here, but that was probably the hardest thing. Just, it was a little bit isolating. And, and I did have lots of friends that I still spoke to, but it was a whole sort of a clean slate. It was a whole new thing. And I, I often say to girls, when you get married, it's strange when you, if you take on your husband's name for 12 months, you feel like you're in no man's land because you're not your old name, but you don't quite feel like your new name yet. And that was probably easy that I moved and no one knew me. My name was Melinda Dunn. No one knew me as Melinda Dunn. I was instantly Melinda O'Donoghue. So, yeah, that, that, was, that was a strange thing now looking back. And I can imagine like, you know, a lot of women living on the land, having a newborn and being quite isolated would be quite challenging. Very much so. But country women are amazing and, and everyone, probably every couple of weeks, someone would have playgroup at their, at their home, which was really lovely. And so there might be six or seven women and the kids would all play and preschool and the girls at all, you know, they'd meet in town, that we'd be all in town for the day and because it's too far to go home. So there's that we've got a lovely women's club in Moray, the town and country club. So we'd go to the town and country club for lunch or you do your shopping or go to someone's home. So that was, a, that was a really lovely thing to do that. You do really rely on your friends when, you, when you're in the trenches in those early childhood years. Before school starts, that's when, it's, that's when it's lovely, I think. Everyone's really, there's no, you don't realise it while you're in it, but there's no real time constraints. You can waft off for the day and go to a friend's house so your children can have a play. But when kids start school... You're catching buses and doing all those sorts of things and like my children used to catch the bus at 12 past seven in the morning and get home at five o'clock at night so um yeah it's just one of those funny things now let's talk about the drought and was your sewing somewhat of an escape for you through that oh definitely absolutely um and Des at that point wasn't having any truck work because there was nothing to do basically and he went to work for a dear friend for um three years 
and I just kept on sewing. Uh, and, you know, quite often the little bit of money that I make from sewing just goes towards, you know, bits and pieces. And although we were in the trenches of school, um, school fees at that point, so my sewing was pretty vital and working at TAFE to keeping us going. And it's funny, when I took on the TAFE job, I sort of fell into it because the lady that had had the job for 27 years um, retired and I just was lucky and fortunate enough to have the qualifications to be able to do to teach at TAFE, which is, you know, financially very good for um, school fees and all those sorts of things. Um, so the drought, yeah, I, I suppose it was funny. I was in my own little world in my sewing room, but I would look out the window and we we pretty much lost our whole garden. We didn't have water for about two years. The dam completely dried out. So that it was quite depressing. It was just brown. And I you just keep on thinking, surely it's going to rain surely it's going to rain and it just didn't it really it really was quite distressing I have to say but we knew that it would end and you'd get the long range forecast oh no there'll be no rain, no rain for another six months and there was little bits of showers but nothing substantial so when the drought did break it, it was quite quite extraordinary it was amazing so your sewing room was, I guess, somewhere that you could escape from what was going yeah, on. Very, yeah, definitely. Absolutely. There's lots of lots of fabric and fluff and beads and all those sorts of things. It's probably messier than it should be most of the time. Um, in an ideal world, I'd love to have a little studio that people would just, just try their dresses on in there and it's always tidy, but it is. It gets very hectic and I get very busy and I do find that I'm apologising a lot, saying I'm sorry about the state oh, of my stuff. It adds to the charm. I know many, many girls that have had their dresses made by you and they just said it's like walking into a wonderland when they come to your beautiful home. Can you describe to me what your sewing room looks like? <laughs> well, actually, I had when when I we lived at our little rented house, I used to sew on a on a closed in veranda, and and it was small. And then we moved to Kiramingli, and and I started sewing in what was Mister Nicholson's office, and it is a small room with one window and and two doors, and and it's a small dark room. And my mother used to say, "I can't believe such." beautiful things come out of this dreadful little dark room and then when I was turning 40 we had a we had a garage that was attached to the house that we didn't use and Des said I think I better build you a proper studio so he did that was my 40th birthday party he very not birthday party birthday present he built this lovely sewing room with um two great big windows and I can see out and I can see when people are coming which is really good and I must admit I'm, I'm pretty good at not forgetting people but there have been times when I've looked out the window and thought Ooh, oh no someone's coming for a fitting and I've forgotten about them um but I do have a calendar on my door and I try to write things on it but people are generally pretty good I've never really got myself into too much trouble doing that um but yeah it's a it's a lovely room it's got a very big table um that's got a linen skirt around it and underneath are all boxes of fabrics and laces and different things because people will come and they'll you know I'll say, well, this is a nice fabric, this is this, and I like to be able to access access them. I'd love to one day have some big cupboards built to go in there, but um, that'll happen eventually. And then I sort of sit, my sewing room, my sewing, I've got an industrial sewing machine. It's a little bit in the window so I can see and I've got good light behind me, which is really good. Actually, I had a really interesting thing happen a couple of weeks ago. I was sewing in a 
and a lovely owl came and sat behind me. Oh, I saw the just, photo yeah, of it. Which was amazing. And people keep saying, well, that's really good luck. And I said, well, I think he might have been visiting two weeks ago and the house didn't burn. But, um, yeah, it was the strangest thing, but lovely, um, really lovely. And I've got two chairs that just sit opposite my table oh, it, where I sew. So usually a bride will come with their mum or with a friend. So they just, we usually sit and have a chat there and, and then there's a little space in the centre of the room that we'll try on the dresses. Hmm. And girls come from all over Australia to see they you. Do. They Even do. had some overseas requests. Where do people come from? They, they, I've had a girl from America and a, and a girl from England, um, a couple of girls from Perth, girls from Victoria, girls from Queensland, Northern Territory, girls from Canberra and Sydney um, and lots of country girls and it's all word of mouth. Um, they'll be someone's friend or someone's sister or someone's cousin or something. So, um, yeah, there's quite a few families where I've made you know, might have made three daughters' wedding dresses, which is really lovely. That and I've got a girl at the moment that I've made her two sisters' dresses and I'm about to start her dress. So it's lovely when you have that family connection with someone. Oh, it's so special. And how does that work? You Do they fly to Maureen and you go and pick them up? They do. Yeah, quite oh. often that happens. I'll go and, and pick them up um, at the airport. But sometimes they'll either have a friend or... Most of them probably drive, but there are girls that fly, obviously. Um, quite often they'll come and they'll stay with me for a couple of days and we'll get all the patterns done in one day and then I'll they'll go away, I'll make the dress and I'll come back for the final fitting and and that's sort of how we do it. Um, it's, it's, it's a fairly high-pressured thing for me to do that, but I've found that that's the easiest way and I can't make them come too many times, but generally three to four fittings will get the dress sort of sorted um but I'm always saying to them bring a good bra bring a pair of shoes um yeah you don't want to forget so your bra or your shoes no you no, no, that way <laughs> but just bring a good bra and I think they think why is she asking you to do that but you just it's that foundation to do the patterns and things so um yeah which is lovely really really nice how much of a role do you play in the design of the dresses or you know choosing fabrics and that sort of thing do you are you quite integral in that department i am i am i will generally say to girls go and try a dress on go and spend a day books of appointments take not too many people with you take your mother a sister someone and and just take some support but go and try on dresses and i always say to them you'll know what you don't like more than what you do like mm-hmm. um and try on all sorts of dresses and sometimes they'll say oh i really like a poofy dress and they thought they would have liked a straight one um and then I'll generally send them off to a fabric shop and then we'll sit down and and figure it out I don't ever try and talk a girl out of a dress unless it's unflattering but I have to show her why it's unflattering by making her a calico twelve. that's more flattering I find that if you try and change a bride's mind they'll never be happy they've and 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 a lot of times I don't know the girls very well so I like them to come with someone that knows them very well because then they could say, well, that's not you or that is or whatever. But generally most girls know what they like. I actually love it when a bride comes and she's very decisive and this is what I want and that's that. When girls are washy and, you know, wishy-washy, that can be difficult because I don't want to have to convince someone to wear a particular dress, but I'm very much all about 
this has to be the most flattering dress that you will ever wear. And you can you absolutely can't look back tell at on someone's face, can't you, when they're happy with something or they're unhappy yeah, with something. Yeah, definitely. Written all over their face. <laughs> definitely. There's a smile. I'm like, yep, that's fine. We're on the right track now. Um, and quite often I'll know. They'll leave and they'll be like, when they're doing patterns, I'll be like, no, no, I'm good. And I always think I'll get a phone call in a couple of days and they will phone call and go, oh, I'm just not sure about this. And I'm like, yep, absolutely. That's fine. And I always say to them, I don't mind how often we change this pattern but I don't really want to change the dress once it's made, then then that becomes quite difficult. Um, but I, I make the calico toile probably three or four times. So a bride will know exactly what she's getting before I even cut into her fabric. And I find that I'm a great procrastinator. I circle fabric for a couple of hours the day that I cut things out. You know, I'll have all day to do it and it'll be three o'clock in the afternoon and I'll still be wafting off and, you know, cleaning a cupboard or having a cup of coffee and then I think I've just got to commit to cutting this fabric it's it's strange I find it hard to commit to cut the fabric I don't know why you get nervous yeah I think so and I I know how much money is involved with some of these some fabrics that I've cut into have been $1,500 a meter so quite often there's a lot lot of money invested in the fabric and we're generally not in a position that if I've got to buy new fabric, I can't afford to replace mm-hmm. someone's fabric if I do something wrong. So it will always take me a day to cut a dress out. I, I labour long and hard. I had actually had to make a mother of the bride dress for a dear friend last year and it was really beautiful floral fabric and it took me eight hours to cut it out because I had to match all the flowers and, and lots of just making sure that I was doing the right thing. You can't just roar into something and cut it. And I think people think, oh, you whip that up. There's no whipping up with a wedding dress. It's a, it's a long, you know, laborious process of making sure that everything's fine. What is your favourite part of the process? Um, I love getting to know the girls and I... Never forget them when we had the um, Love, Lace and Longing exhibition with the gallery in Moray a couple of years ago. Everyone was fascinated that I could remember every girl's name, every dress, the detail about the dress. And and I said to them, I am so invested in these dresses. I spend three months making them and you just don't forget. It's just one of those things. And then those girls become, you know, part of my life, I suppose. And and I always just have such a soft spot for my brides. It's one of those funny things. I will always remember their maiden name. I sometimes don't remember their married names. Um, but I do also say that making a dress is a bit like being pregnant and giving birth. You get halfway through it and think, oh, God, I want this to end. And then a bride walks down the aisle and I think, oh, that's lovely. Isn't that beautiful? And not the pain of, of making a wedding dress. It's not painful, but there's always things that I worry about. Will something sit properly? Will the fabric do something weird? And I'm always nervous. And I think that's not a bad thing. I, I, I'm never, I never think, oh, it'll be fine. Uh, I'm always making sure that everything's right. How many dresses have you made? Oh, a lot. Well over 300, I would think now. Wow. Um, I've been doing it for such a long time. I'm always, and people would roll their eyes, I'm always saying, no, I'm going to slow down, I'm going to retire. I would never retire <laughs> from it, but I would like to not work seven days a week and for life not to be so hectic. And it is a little bit better this year, I, I, and I hate saying no to people, but I just can't fit it in. And, and my family are very good, but I have spent a lot of time not doing things with them because I've been sewing um, and that's hard it's it's very hard to 
to, to find the balance. And that's the thing that I struggle most with. And I guess, like you said, it's not something you can just whip up. It is. No, no. Every dress. It, no. And it, it's a commitment. And in, and I, I sort of have only eyes for the dress when I'm at the most important part of the dress I can't I mean I can't think about other things but everything sort of goes out the window if someone asks us for dinner or I've got to do something I'm like no I can't I've just got to get this dress under control I can't um and that's that's a juggle sometimes and I work three days a week at TAFE so I I do try and you know I've got to get home and do what I've got to do and then get into my sewing room by sort of eight o'clock at night and I I work till 11 30 most nights but my sewing rooms I've got a television and I've got Netflix and I don't really I'm not really watching the television but it's on in the background while I'm sewing and I actually listen to lots of podcasts because it's sort of boring sitting there with nothing going on while I'm sewing so hmm. everyone's gone to sleep (laughs) <laughs> yeah very very much so and I, we, we did think a few years ago before Des built my sewing room we've got a, a, a lovely old wooden garage across the driveway that we turned into a kids rompers room and I did think originally that I would like that to be my sewing studio but I sew so much at night time that I don't think and I'm not really a scaredy cat but I wouldn't like to be so far from the house at 11 o'clock at night mm. I have heard that your husband makes the buttons for the dresses he does he does does. so I haven't did that about (laughs) I used to actually when I first started dressmaking I used to send fabric to Sydney to a company called Perlman's I think they're called and I and they would make the buttons and send them back to me but I'd have to be really organized and make sure that the fabric went off and I usually don't send the fabric until I cut the dress out because I just send scraps of fabric and then an older couple in Narrabri started making buttons and I found out through a fabric shop and so they then did the buttons for quite a few years and I would send the fabric send a prepaid envelope but it, that was sort of like a two-week process of sending them to Narrabri and back and then Betty the lovely lady she was a dressmaker she was in her 80s and, and she rang me one day and said oh it's just too much would you like to buy the button machine from me and I said yes and I was thinking oh just another thing that I'm gonna to have to find time to do so quite often and I actually have just made a dress for a girl and it's got 200 buttons on it and quite often I'm busy and and if Des is not doing anything I make him wash his hands because he's got very black hands usually from <laughs> doing mechanic things and and he sits and watches television and makes makes the buttons um yeah, you've I got to cut out all these little circles. Yeah. Beautiful. <laughs> so he's quite proud of people. I said, you just make these buttons? I'm like, oh, yes. yes. He doesn't make the really, sometimes buttons have a few layers. It might have organza over silk or, or beaded fabric or lace, and that's too much for him. He can't cope with the too many layers and he gets the big stuff. But if it's just plain, simple fabric, but he does slightly roll his eyes when he's doing it. And, when you um, let him know that he's it, got 200 to make. Absolutely. He's like, oh. But like all men, it's it's got a you've got to bang this sort of lever down and he does it I, I can't be anywhere near I'm like you don't need to do it so roughly just gentle bang bang and no bang bang and I'm like oh so I have to go away you can go into the shed and do that <laughs> but I have to make sure that he has a shower washes his hands he's got to be clean as you can imagine um black hands on white fabrics not yeah. very good not the best combination no definitely not I my favorite thing about the whole process of you making these wedding dresses is that more often than not, you actually go to the I wedding. Do. Of I do. Girls, I think that's so beautiful. 
I do. Well, I, you know, and I do travel a long way to do it. And you become quite close to these brides and I just like to be there on the day to make sure that everything's fine. And, you know, I always say to them, you know, mums are usually running around like a headless chook. Bridesmaids are usually looking at themselves and the bride's trying to, you know, get into a dress on the own, on her own. And bridesmaids are not always looking at themselves, but sometimes if they've not been bridesmaid or don't have a sister that's been married, they are really worrying about what they're looking like. And I like to go... Usually for weddings at three o'clock, I'll go at sort of 10 o'clock in the morning and I'll just spend all morning pressing all the dresses, making sure everything's fine. And sometimes things happen on wedding days um, and I have had to quite a few times get my sewing machine out and alter something like a bridesmaid dress that I haven't. I generally don't make bridesmaids dresses. Usually there's nothing wrong with the dress. No, I don't think there's ever been anything wrong with a dress that I've made on a wedding day. But there's always some sort of an emergency um, and people are running late or I just like to be there just to make sure that everything's fine. Oh, I think and that's they- so beautiful. That is serious, Melinda, mm. because you haven't got enough on already. <laughs> no, I don't know. It's just part of the service and it's funny. You know, my mother's always going, need to go and dress these brides and I said well I would sit at home worrying all day thinking oh, I hope that's right oh I hope they can get those buttons done up and I did send a bride quite a few years ago and she was getting married at Newcastle or somewhere and I must have not been able to go for some reason and she had all buttons and loops down the back of her dress and all of her bridesmaids and her mother and everyone at the wedding had false fingernails and none of them could do the buttons up and they had to eventually <laughs> get a crochet hook so now I and I it never occurred to me that that would happen and I think they had a pretty stressful time trying to get the buttons done up there's always a zipper underneath but I think they eventually got a crochet hook so I always say to girls now just make sure that there's someone on the day that doesn't have false fingernails because they're you know they're thick and they're hard to to do up I mean something I think I, never ever have thought about would be no it's strange and I, I do have the old husband curse me I think when mm. when um they have to undo the dresses but undoing the buttons is quite easy you've just sort of got to flick them but I generally will give the mum or the bride or someone a little lesson in how to do it and if I'm not there I'll say to them just have a practice run when when the bride's not in the dress of doing up the buttons Um, but I don't I don't trust zippers just on their own so I like to do buttons and loops and zippers and the buttons and loops are a, a bit of my trademark I think that's just I just yeah that's just my little signature that I like to put on a dress do you have a favorite dress or one that's been the most challenging I did have a very challenging dress of a girl lovely girl a few years ago that she went and tried on this dress and at that point it was a sixteen thousand dollar dress when it probably would be 10 years ago now and she absolutely fell in love with it but there were no photos of it and she sort of drew it for me and explained to me it had a hem that curved and moved and and it went up at the front and did this and she flew from Sydney and by the end of the weekend I was thinking no idea what she wants me to do but anyway eventually I nutted it out and and it and it did have 160 metres of boning in the hem. It was quite an extraordinary oh dress. Oh I have a lot of tears over that dress, but she was really, she never wavered in her confidence that I could do it, but it was a really difficult dress. And once I figured it out, it was all right. And that's the hardest thing is the patterns are the most difficult thing because you've got to figure out how to make something or how it sits and 
once the patterns are done, I find I'm fine. But yeah, it was very difficult. I mean, that you know, I always say I shouldn't have favourites, but there are a couple of dresses. There was a beautiful cinnamony coloured dress of a beautiful girl in Moray that I loved. And she got married on a winter's day at lunchtime and she just glistened in the sunlight. And I don't know whether it stands out in my mind because it was a, a beautiful blushy cinnamony colour, but it was really beautiful. But they are all beautiful. They, they really are. There's really not any dresses that I've ever made that I've thought, oh, no, that's awful. Oh, I just mm. love everything about your story, Melinda. It's just oh. so beautiful. I feel like they should make it into a movie. It's so romantic. <laughs> <laughs> I really do. I just think it's so beautiful and I just think that it's just so obvious how much you love what you do and it's just it's I, I do and and that and that's the the battle that I probably have with people saying, oh, you know, it's too much. You should give it up. Family, probably. I don't. It is who I am, and it would be very strange not to sew. I think I, I often tell the story years ago when my sister, her little boy, had a, a birthday party, and we were at Wagga, and I didn't know anyone there. And Kate, my Kate, was little, and she had a little smocked dress on, and there was a lovely lady in Moree that used to. I can't smock, so she would smock the dresses for me. And this woman said to me, oh, did you make your daughter's dress? And I said, oh, no, 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 I didn't. And she said, oh, well, obviously you can't sew. Well, I sew and I do this and that. And I thought, oh, oh, oh. And I didn't say anything. And I thought, oh, that's so strange. I'm known as, that's what I'm known as, that I sew. And for her to say, oh, you obviously can't sew. I thought, oh, that's very odd. But anyway, I just thought. a I funny didn't. thing to say. I thought, yeah, well, <laughs> Only thought, she knew. I thought, <laughs> I can't explain. I just went, yeah, okay, right, yeah. we'll just send that one to team up. <laughs> but it's funny. I've not people always say, "Oh, do you make Kate lots of clothes?" And and I have made her some special dresses for formals and things. But as a general rule, I I, I sadly have not really had that much time to clothes. Occasionally things, but um, yeah, it's just one of those funny things. I I, I do gen generally spend my time making more. Um, important dresses I suppose not that Kate's not important but I don't do very much general sewing I'm continuously astounded by the remarkable resilience that women in rural areas exhibit Melinda embodies that just get on with it mentality that I find truly impressive her story is one that transports me back to being a little girl again the authentic passion she exudes when speaking about her adoration for her craft makes me so happy. I do hope you enjoyed today's episode. Until next time, have a wonderful week.